Hi, I'm Yuval Brisker, and this is a jolt of Uvelocity. Edition 2022. In fact, I've been kind of off the air for, I would say, more than two and a half years, but I'm rebooting this podcast to spend some time every month talking about things that are on my mind, my business, my people, people who I work with, the state of the uh, technology world, fintech, and what it's like to manage a company, to start, found, manage a company, and anything else that comes on my mind. So I look forward to seeing you back here every month on the last week of the month. And I want to introduce my producer extraordinaire and one of my collaborators at Alvier, Jay Sailing. Hi, Jay. Hi, Yuval. How are you? Thanks for having us. It's great to talk to you. And I look forward to doing this every month as we talked about and also bringing on other people, not just me and you, onto this podcast. Yes, definitely. You know, we have some really cool topics to cover, and I'm excited to especially dive into this one on digital distraction. I think ever since the first meeting I sat in with you at Alvier, I noticed that it was something that you were very adamant about keeping phones not only off, but away from you in your work bag. And unless you had something to present, then your laptop was going to be away too. Yep. It's been something that I've become increasingly aware of. And I think let's just start by talking about a lot of the challenges that you see around digital distraction. You know, you asked Mark Benioff at Recode about some of the challenges that he experiences with digital distraction and how to overcome them. And yep. correct me if I'm wrong, but he didn't actually have a very good answer. He didn't. It was clearly something he was struggling with as well. And despite the fact that he has an enormous company and he actually is a person who is dedicated to mindfulness and a lot of other things. In fact, we both had a, the same teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh. He's struggling with it as well, and it's something that perhaps he thinks about, but certainly he says that he hasn't really done much about it in his company. So sometimes I think I'm a little bit dictatorial on that one, and I always somewhat struggle with it a little bit, just the idea that forcing people to do things that against their will, <laughs> not exactly something I, I'm a big proponent of. But in this case, the addiction is so great for all of us, every one of us, me included, that the only way to deal with it, in my mind, is do some exclusion, exclusion therapy. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. I have, you know, this really strong conviction. Of course, this is not the first company I've managed. And I had the same struggles in my previous company, Toa Technologies. I would say the thing that really irked me and really unsettled me in many ways was how we're always talking to the people somewhere over there. <laughs> you know, somehow we, we prioritize talking to people over there somewhere rather than the people who are sitting right next to us. We will interrupt conversations with people because we've gotten a text and answer the text first rather than say, I don't need to answer this text right now. I'm actually sitting with this human being right across from me. So that really, really started me thinking. I saw couples who would be spending time with their kids and everybody was on the phone or the kids were playing on some PlayStation thingy and the parents were both texting. Maybe they were texting each other. 
So those things really bothered me, and I really started thinking and looking at it in the workplace, and I realized that sometimes people would travel a whole day with and spend thousands of dollars to sit next to each other in the room and then end up texting somebody over there, you know? And I thought to myself, how absurd is that? I mean, when we're together, we should be together. And so that's kind of why I... But I also realized that asking for it is not enough because of the addiction. The world's greatest addiction is the phone. And more people are addicted than any other substance abuse. Because of that addiction, I realized it was going to have to be by decree. It couldn't be, you know, oh, I'm pleased asking you to try and focus on this meeting rather than on your phone. It's like, no, put away the phone. Put away the, you know, it's like people who are alcoholics. You got to put away the bottles. You got to get rid of the bottles. You don't want to have the temptation in front of you. It's a really good point. In a group setting, it definitely leads to better conversation and I think a much more productive meeting as well. It's really interesting to think though, you know, like on one side of the coin, you're really like inbound communication in the workplace is almost an important part of being, call it highly productive. And if you can multitask, you're considered a better employee. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's either like a false representation of productivity or you can be considered a higher productive employee. But I think when you think about what the modern day desk setup looks like in 2022, you have multiple screens, you have Slack going, you have email going, you have work notifications. And then on top of that, you have your phone notifications. And I think it's interesting to think about how do you poise yourself to not be reactive to everything, but yet stay on top of all the different things that you're trying to achieve throughout the day. That's something I'm struggling with too. (laughs) I can't tell you I have an answer for that one. I mean, like everything else, the beginning is awareness. So... I would start there. Like, if you have awareness that you're living in a distracted environment, a world, and you want to have more control over your focus, then you got to be aware that you have a problem. <laughs> I mean, let's face <laughs> it, right? I think the minute you are aware that there's a problem of, like, focus, I'd call it a problem of focus, then, you know, even, it's not even a distraction. It's at the level of the focus. It's a focus epidemic. Because that's the essence of being present, is being able to focus on something and do so in a complete way. And I think that we couldn't be recording this podcast right now if we weren't 100% focused on what we were doing. Agreed. The conversation wouldn't be able to exist in a sense. And I think you can say that with everything. You need to have a conversation, existing conversation with everything that you're doing. And it's not just a person. It could be a spreadsheet or a presentation or an essay or, I mean, there are people who can't afford to not be focused. Surgeons, musicians, those people are live performers that have something very, very substantial at stake, which is perfection. (laughs) They have to be perfect in real time. And I think that that creates a level of presentness and focus that doesn't allow for any distractions. So otherwise you can't just cannot perform the thing. And so I think for us, it's the same. I always talk about striving for perfection. 
I think that it doesn't really matter what you do. I think if you're really truly striving for perfection, then you'll take that awareness of, you know, the distractions and the lack of focus, and you'll find a way to create opportunities for yourself to focus and to do your best work. That's a source of joy. It is a source of joy. And I think when you are distracted, you're reacting to things over being aware of what you are trying to accomplish in, in the present and staying on point with that. And I think not being in a state of reactiveness is a very powerful place to be, especially when you're in the work setting, because you're able to really accomplish your core goals. And when you're not in a state of reactiveness, you're able to kind of identify noisy notifications versus something that may come up that you actually need to tackle in that present moment. And so I think when it comes to like avoiding distraction, I think it's really not being reactive to what's going on around you, which is super tough to do in 2022. But that's what I'm saying, that you have to put away the addiction. If you keep the addiction in front of you, you're going to reach for the bottle, <laughs> you know, even if the bottle's passive and it doesn't call you and this bottle actually calls you. So I just think you can become more creative. And I don't think creativity happens when you're distracted. You really have to put it away. Finding ways to be creative, and it doesn't matter what you do, you can always be creative. So finding ways to be creative is, like I said, there's a joy in it. There's a happiness. And the whole quest of looking for happiness and being with some kind of ethereal, unreachable goal out there for the definition of happiness is a ridiculous concept. The idea is to find happiness in the here and now, not to hope you get there someday. And I think that all that is a direct relation of focus, your ability to focus on something. And if you don't focus, then basically time is meaningless. It just disappears like sand in between your fingertips. And you can see that a lot of times when you're trying to multitask. Time really disappears, and not in a good way in my mind, because you're missing something. When I see that when I, like I'm in a meeting and I start doing stuff on my computer and whether I'm texting or I'm surfing, and I realize I can hear the voices talking, but I don't really hear what they're saying. Yeah. That's what focus is about. It's listening and hearing what people and everything else around you is saying back to this concept of the dialogue. And so all that is enshrined in focus. As you were talking about that, it made me think of the days where you're kind of, it becomes three o'clock in the afternoon and all of a sudden you ask like, where did the day go? And then you kind of look back on what you've been working on the entire day and you've probably tried to tackle six or seven different things, but probably haven't been able to check one of those off because you're unfocused. Right. Back to your question, like, it's all about awareness. I think that I'm talking about it because I want people to be aware. And I do things in the company. By the way, I'm like both the sort of the leader teacher and I'm also <laughs> the practitioner student because some of these things are just things that I think about. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I execute them, you know, myself. But I think that that's a way of teaching, right? It's being both the teacher and the practitioner. It's a cycle that feeds on itself. The more I think about it, the more I try and build policies or ideas or messages to 
help overcome the distraction, the more I'm teaching myself and the more I learn in order to share. So it's kind of an interesting self-feeding cycle. It's still about the basis. It's the focus concept. And I think that by calling it focus, not distraction, (laughs) to me, it's taking it out of the negativity and put it into something positive. Because distraction, it's like a form of criticism. You're criticizing somebody because they're distracted. You know, it's like, it's not a positive. And whereas finding focus, (laughs) rather than not being distracted, is a much better way of looking at it. You have to realize the distraction, but then you need to transform that into finding focus. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of like looking at trying to find the solution rather than harping on what the problem is. And when you found the problem, you want to actually focus on the solution. Yes. Not be mired in the problem. So on that note, I mean, you're building a global company. You have a large portion of the employee base is remote and digital distractions going to be everywhere. And so I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on beyond when we're actually together in a group meeting, you know, turning devices off, putting them away. Where does your head go in terms of like some innovative ideas that you can think of to try and keep people focused? That's a big question. (laughs) It is. It is a big question. I think the best way is what I'm doing is like when we're together, it's about building a culture, a culture of commitment and focus and caring. Again, it's all about these things that feed into each other. Commitment, focus and caring is really not just an interpersonal thing, but it's really towards oneself and what one does and how one chooses to spend this life. I think that it's about finding that happiness and peace in the moment and seeing that that's the best thing that we can strive for and not have any illusions about the future or desires to put too much weight on the future. (laughs) Who cares about the future? I mean, we all have to care, but I think we need to care about the present. And by caring the present, we're actually caring for the future, not worrying about the future, knowing but caring today. That's the culture I'm trying to create. And then there's no need to enforce, because if you can create that culture within the company, within the community that you actually have some influence on, a committed, caring, and focused environment, then you don't need to tell people, because I think the people will actually understand it on their own. My dad used to say, you know, if I come to him and say, what's this word mean? And he'd say, if I tell you, (laughs) you won't remember what it is. Go and find it yourself in the dictionary. And this is the same thing. If I tell you, You won't internalize it. I can create the environment. Part of it is words, but I can create the environment in which people, at least when they're together, they're they're focused and they see that it's not done out of desire to control them, but to really, in a sense of care. And that there's a strong commitment to the work and the mission and the people around us in this company. They also have to put us, put their devices away <laughs> over time. And I don't think it's immediate. People will, you know, think about that on their own. I won't have to tell them what to do. That's great. That's a great point. A lot of what you're talking about really goes back to just being present. 
And I know at the beginning of this episode, we touched on mindfulness yeah, and how that's really something that's a driver of being present. And I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on how practicing mindfulness has made an impact on your kind of career as a whole. Mm-hmm. Enormous, immemeasurable. I discovered Thich Nhat Hanh, my teacher, who just passed away in January at the age of 95, in the mid-2000s. I started going and hearing him and listening to him and reading his books and really internalizing, not the, you know, just the surface concept of like mindfulness, meditation, you know, and just the idea of it, but really learning what he taught was the concept of making mindfulness a part of every moment almost of your every day. Meaning, yes, there was practice around meditation and and breathing and really doing sort of more, you know, I would say traditional things that have to do that we conceive of as, you know, as somewhat spiritual or progressive activities for the mind. That was just the basis. But the real true mindfulness for him was being aware of the little things of every single day and taking care to not do them like a robot, but to really have value for everything you do all the time. Like, I'm brushing my teeth. It's a mindful moment. (laughs) You know, I'm doing the dishes. I'm present. I can feel the water. I look at the soap. I look at the food that I'm scraping off the the plate. So that taught me that everything is mindfulness, (laughs) you know, and that was his actual main teaching. And the minute I got that, it was like, oh yeah, I got that. It's pretty cool. And so I don't need to practice mindfulness. I don't even do much meditation, but I'm mindful. And I think in that way, it's a more elevated form. I tell myself because it's about being present all the time or as much of the time as you are present. And I'm not saying that I'm present all the time. Not even close, but enough to feel it. And I think that's given me a lot of confidence in my days. How has it been a part of my success? It helps you be more creative, and it helps you be more calm. You don't go crazy every time something terrible happens. A lot of hard things always happen in business. And I think that you learn how to digest, digest things as opportunities, as intellectual challenges, but you try to keep it away from the emotions too much. From the conversations that I had, I only talked to him personally once, going to his monasteries year after year after year for a while, I came to the conclusion that part of the idea of mindfulness was to remove reactive emotions, meaning to cool down the sort of the flames of emotionality. Because if you look at the history of mankind, the further we got into the mind, mostly, (laughs) except for some people who are actually kind of crazy, the more the mind has been the leading component in our lives, the more peaceful and safe the world has become. And the minute there's emotion involved, oh boy, get out of the way. Because wars are all that, you know, unless you have a guy like Putin, and that's a whole other conversation, who's basically once in a generation global 
So that's a different animal, an, an aggressive one, right? With illusionary ambitions. That's a one kind of war, but a lot of conflict has risen from, from emotion. So that's what the concept of mindfulness is about. It's also connecting with the mind in a present way that allows you to be more calm and be more thoughtful and be more receptive and be more strategic than reactive. So that's how I think that it's helped me in business. It helped me think strategically and overcome some pretty serious challenges and believe that if I stay calm and the solution will present itself. You made some really good points. And I think whether it's practicing meditation or just making it a huge priority in, in my life to be mindful, I think you get to a point where you understand what being present is. And that's really powerful because you can then catch yourself when you find yourself extremely distracted and you start to get these overwhelming feelings. And instead of letting yourself go down that road, you can catch yourself and be like, okay, well, fundamentally, my mind is in another place than it should be right now. And that's how I need to fix this situation. And that's an equally as powerful thing as any portion of mindfulness. Agreed. So Yuval, I know you mentioned Technon Han, and I was wondering if you could give us a little insight as to how you found out about him, what type of, whether it be books or any other form of education around him, and really just how he came to be a big part of your life. I went through a really big crisis in the early 2000s after the dot-com crash in 9-11, and both because 9-11 was a really big, shocking event, very impactful, and also because I'd lost my job because there was a dot-com crash and I was out of work and there was no work in the tech industry pretty much. And I was going through a real crisis about how would I survive? <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine said, you know, have you ever heard of Thich Nhat Hanh? And I was like, kind of, maybe, yes, but not really. And he said, well, you should read this book. And it was a book called The Sun, My Heart by Thich Nhat Hanh. But that was kind of just the opening to it that I really began to discover this, you know, amazing person. The book that really, 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 really got me going was the book called Peace is Every Step. Peace is Every Step. Think about that title. So many meanings, right, in very few words. And that's really, you know, what I'm talking about, right? Peace is Every Step. It's not like somewhere over there somewhere or, you know, it's somebody else's problem or responsibility. Peace is every step. And I read that book. Oh, my God, it blew my mind. And the first words in that book is like every single day we have the opportunity to live life anew when we wake up in the morning. And I thought to myself, right. <laughs> and then I said, I got to go see this guy. I got to go check him out because he wasn't about like some kind of guru organization culty thing. It was all about you. It wasn't about him. He happened to be the guy who relayed the information, but he always said, I'm in you and you're in me. It's not like I'm more than you or, you know, you need to worship me. No, don't, please. I'm just another person. And so to me, that was very powerful. I don't like worshiping. I got that strong, but mostly it was about this concept of like, every day you wake up in the morning, you have an opportunity to live life anew and start from there and go from there. And so 
that was big. And I started going to see him when he came to the United States. He was based in France. He was Vietnamese and left Vietnam during the war, but was already an ordained Buddhist from the age of 17, a monk. And he left during the war. He had some encounters with Martin Luther King, influenced him somewhat, apparently, and exiled in France and built a monastery in the south of France for what he called engaged Buddhism, meaning not something that's removed from day-to-day life in some meditation retreat, (laughs) you know. I mean, he was into retreats, don't get me wrong, but it was really about teaching you how to be mindful. It wasn't about, like, here's a meditation retreat. It was you lived it, like, peace was every step there, and it still is. So, I mean, I think those things really, really appealed to me because I found religion itself to be quite idolatrous, Trizing. There's something about it. It wasn't for me, let's put it that way. And I really was looking, but you're still looking for something, right? You're looking for something to believe in and that works for you and that helps you. So I think that's how I found the guy. And then I started going over there to France and I went like four or five times. And it was a real anchor, a real stabilizing influence. And not to say that it You know, you completely avoid turbulence, emotional turbulence and such. But when you're there, it can help. And over time, I think it can calm you down. And that's pretty nice. (laughs) You know, I find it to be much more pleasurable to be be calmed down than to be emotional. It's overrated. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree. So just a side note for all the listeners, we'll drop some notes in the podcast notes with links to some of the books that you've all mentioned, as well as maybe some other helpful content that we find. Yeah. So we've covered a lot. I want to sum it up here for the audience. And I think, you know... And this is just the first podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We, We got a lot going on. You have some serious plans there. Yes, we do. Yeah. So I think when it comes to digital distraction... What I think we can look to as a potential solution is just really keeping people in a place where they can stay focused. You almost have to get to a place where you accept all these notifications and all these things that can distract you as a necessary evil. But when you stay present and stay clear on what you set out to accomplish, then it's really easy to separate noise from what you really should be staying focused on. Right. To that point, is there anything that you want to end on here? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think only very limited situation when you can actually banish the devices away from your life. So I agree with you. You need to accept them. I wouldn't call them evil. I mean, I would say they were just (laughs) a necessary distraction. (laughs) (laughs) And I think you're right. You need to be able to separate from those distractions to the things that you need to focus on and then put those aside through mindfulness and awareness of those distractions and what they do to you. So I'm 100% in agreement. And I do highly recommend delving into this Thich Nhat Hanh legacy. He died in January. This is kind of almost a tribute podcast to Thich Nhat Hanh, which is perfectly fine with me, by the way, because a lot of my thinking comes from there. And so he used to say in these retreats where people used to come to France to sit with him for a week or two or three, there was always a QA session and he would say, you know, people would always ask him one question that was always repetitive, like, what happens when you die? And he would always say, oh, we just become part of everything. 
we turn into ash and we stay in other people's minds, you know, we continue living in other ways. And by hearing me, you can hear him. He's continuing to live through me. And it's a form of immortality in a way. And so in tribute to him, here we are. Thanks very much for listening to A Jolt of Uvelocity, my podcast that will be published every month on the last Wednesday of every month on all the platforms. And looking forward to seeing you again as we explore all the different things that Jay has in store for us. Thanks to Jay Sailing and see you soon. For more information, visit us at uvelocity.com where you can find transcripts of these podcasts and other articles and thoughts that you might find useful. Uvelocity.com. That's Y-U-V-A-L-O-C-I-T-Y dot com.